Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. We are designed to work hard. We are designed to have a purpose. And the reason retirement kills people is because it removes those two things. It's characterized by an attitude. I am powerful. I'm not invalid. I'm not injured. I have a tremendous amount of capacity People who take good care of themselves and they, they look at this and they're thinking, wow, I'm only halfway through my life. Isn't that awesome? I got another half a life. And I've personally learned that so much of what is going on in my life, things that are important to me or the changes that I've made or I'm planning on making are really typical for people like myself. Everyone is fascinating. You just need to ask the right question. Hello, everyone. This is Fei Wu. I am your host for the Face World Podcast. Face World Podcast is a weekly show released every Monday. And it is a show that I created back in October 2014. And since then, we have welcomed more than 20,000 downloads and listeners from over 40 countries. What we seek out for are interesting people with stories that you can relate to. Well, today I want to welcome a gentleman named David Stort. David is the founder of Aegist, a website A-G-E-I dot S-T, filled with beautiful photography interviews with successful and vibrant people, generally over the age of 50. David defines the mission of Aegis to be a better understanding of this inspirational, influential, but underserved generation. After spending 10 years of working in advertising, I too feel the obsession of brands chasing the affections of young people, namely young millennials, even centennials. Yet as a generation, the over 50s control two-thirds of the world's wealth. How should we live our lives after the so-called prime time? Is it inevitable to associate negativity, constant fear with aging? David asked a better question. What are we doing about all this? So he decided to dedicate his life's work to seeking out, interviewing, and photographing people over the age of 50 who are living lives that we should all be aspiring to. Furthermore, Aegist is a place where alternative templates of aging are created for generations to come. His interviews with these sung and unsung heroes stretch across people who are actively pursuing arts, music, and business. Some are on to her sixth or seventh business. Some sold their stuff and are building a house in Barcelona. Some are learning more about social media and engaging with tens of thousands of fans. 
Some are in their peak physical condition, such as my friend Jill Barubi, who is in fitness competitions year-round. In addition to being the voice for lifelong learnings and wisdoms, David and I talked about the business side of things as well. People have asked me how I balance between a passion project and paying the bills. Many answers, by the way, have been provided via many episodes on FaceWorld. The same question applies to David. What is the monetization model for ageist? Turns out, brands cannot just ignore a generation of people who have more ability to pay for things they and their children love and enjoy. David, with years of research and interviews, holds the key to understanding the cohort of people age 50 and over. I hope you enjoy this episode and please help spread the word of Phase World Podcast by sharing with your family and friends who could benefit from this message of ageist who are living proof of this mission. Did you know that the number of people today age 60 and over has doubled since 1980? The number of people age 80 years will almost quadruple to 395 million between now and 2050. So there's no better time than now to understand how we can live to change the preconceptions associated with aging and ultimately to make the most of our precious lives. Without further ado, please welcome David Stored to the Phase Royal Podcast. David, welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you could join me. And I was just thinking that uh, I was questioning, am I the best interviewer for you? Because I am a big, big fan of people who are older than I am. In fact, as I've mentioned last time, that most of my friends are 10 to 15 years older than I am. I think this might surprise some of my listeners, but it has been this way since I was 18, 19 years old, and there's no difference for me as a 33-year-old today. But I think what you're doing is absolutely phenomenal. It's really interesting too. So I wonder if you, it may be in your own words that you could tell us a little bit more about what Ageist is and isn't. Well, it, Ageist is fundamentally, it's a, it's a magazine devoted to people who are, these people are such that they, they refuse to accept that aging is this grim reality. Uh, we do a regular newsletter where we feature profiles of people that we think are part of our ageist gang and have this uh, certain ageist take on life. The underlying thesis to this is that for the first time in human history, there's this new phase in life that has emerged. And it's sort of people who are 48, 50 to about late 70s, sometimes early 80s. And people in this group feel as though they're not at all done with life. They're really very vivid and vital, and they're they're empowered. That's really the main difference that we see uh, with these folks and the disconnect that you get in the media, how people in this age group are, they're, they're disempowered. You know, when you mentioned a couple of words, I thought it was really interesting that you used the word empowered among these folks that you've interviewed. And I've read a number of interviews. And I have to say, as a photographer yourself, I find the pictures captivating and it's it has this like shooting energy, you know, regardless of how old a reader is. So what do you think are some of the factors that made some of your guests, potentially yourself too, feel empowered? Well, 
That's a that's an interesting question, Faye. I, I don't know if it's so much of a factor. It's just the way they are. I, I would say it's it's characterized by an attitude. Um, I am powerful. I I'm not an invalid. I'm not injured. I have tremendous amount of capacity, and I think it comes from also Faye this idea. People's sense of time. Say I'm I'm 58, looking towards retirement, and retirement means I end. It's just kind of the retirement is the end game. And so, so someone now who's in this age group, they're, they're very aware of the longevity statistics and they see how these things are increasing. And the facts are, if you're a 50-year-old woman and you're, you have some level of education and you have, you have some level of economic stability in your life, your life expectancy is 94. If you're a man, it's 90. And this is an average taken over uh, everyone in the United States. So you can imagine people who take good care of themselves and they, they look at this and they're thinking, wow, I'm only halfway through my life. Wow, isn't that awesome? I got another half a life. Yeah, it is really fascinating. So I think you are also kind of getting into the next question that I was uh, going to ask you specifically, that as a photographer, you know, you've had a career fully at the time, you know, when you decided to set up Aegis. What was that tipping point? What triggered you to start this project? And as a podcaster, by the way, I noticed just how much it's a tremendous amount of work that goes into setting up an interview, taking pictures post-production. What made you decide to do that? Yeah, that's a great question, Faye. And it really came out of a curiosity that I had that was generated because I did this big advertising campaign a couple of years ago. And it was for a huge international cell phone provider. And uh, it was done through an agency that specialized in young people and millennial work. And it it was like a four-month campaign that we were out shooting in these different cities. It was like millions of dollars. And we had to do 60 people around the country. And they had to be between 18 and 29. And they had to use this particular cell phone provider service. And in the course of doing this work as a photographer, I, you know, I'm talking to people and seeing what's up. And I, what I found was that 59 out of the 60 were on their parents' contract. And I thought, that's crazy. Why are, like, why are we doing this? So at the end of the campaign, I went to the agency and I said, hey, do you guys know about this? And they were like, uh, yeah, we know about that. <laughs> I said, well, does your client know about this? Uh, no, we don't tell them that. I said, yeah. well, really? <laughs> tell me, like, why are we marketing to people who they're part of the decision cascade, but they're not the ones writing the check? And they said, well, we know how to market to young people. We know how to speak to millennials. So that's what we do. We don't know about the older, you know, their parents. We, we can't speak to them. So that's, we, we don't. And I, I thought, this is this massive disconnect. I, I, I was astonished at this. So that led me to maybe six or eight months of just very nerdy, like head down investigating what was going on with this. You know, what I, what I found was that this is really endemic to the advertising industry. There's this sort of millennial obsession out there. And the, the reason for it is, there, there are a lot of reasons for it. I mean, partially... Like the people that I was working with on this campaign, the art director, who was awesome, she was 29 
the account people were all in their early 30s. And as I asked them that question, well, why, why aren't you guys, you know, speaking to the, the people who are actually writing the check? And really smart people there. And they said, well, listen, we can talk to people who are younger than us because we've been younger. And, you, and which is, you know, how I work as a photographer. So it's like, I used to be 22. I remember what 22 was like. And I can just kind of take the existing cultural cues and overlay them on my own experience. They said, you're asking us to time travel into the future 20 years. That's impossible. We don't know how to do that. So, so we just don't do that. So that's, that's part of it. The advertising culture tends to be populated by people who are younger. You know, like you, you don't see a lot of people working in the creative parts of agencies who are over 40. They exist, but there aren't many. And I think the other big part of this is there's this confusion between millennial and digital. So these two things are aligned and people think, well, we need to be digital. Okay, that's true. So the only way to be digital is to focus on millennials because they're digital. And I find myself, I'm a fairly technically astute human being. And most of the people that I speak to are also, but it's not thought of that way. And I, and I think the third factor in this is that what companies tend to do is they say, well, Bob's focusing on millennials. I guess we should focus on millennials. They tend to be absolutely obsessed with whatever their competitors in their sector are doing. And they just want to imitate it and put their logo on it. So that's what I found. And then I, I hooked up with a couple of partners and we decided to begin Aegist. And that took us from making that decision to launching the website was about eight or nine months, I want to say. And then that was, a, that was about a year ago. So we've been, I've been at this for almost three years. Mm. Well, you know, one word you mentioned I thought was so interesting was the phrase, I guess, time travel. I haven't thought of it specifically that way, but what a great way to paint a positive future for the people, generations behind who haven't get to experience that. As you know very well, when we were, I mean, we've both been in our 20s at this point, and there was a decade of great uncertainty. In fact, the people of that age live with many doubts, lots of anxiety. I know plenty of people who are on all kinds of psychiatric pills and to make to manage that. And, you know, I, I find it fascinating because in comparison, I'm not saying I am someone who is just so Zen and, uh, you know, is at peace. I'm not either, but I feel like somehow I'm a little bit ahead of the curve compared to even people my own age, because I, in a way, ground myself by surrounding myself with people who are older, who know more and I find it absolutely fascinating to talk to, you know, grandparents to hear about what they have experienced and their parents nearly, you know, a hundred years ago. I mean, there are many words you use on, on your recent interview, you know, when you were being interviewed by Sonia Gill, it was great. It kind of echoed so much of what I personally experienced. So what are some of the things you feel like you've learned and uh, fundamentally through these past two or three years? Well, I, I want to bring up one interesting statistic that I think you'll, you'll enjoy, that we aimed our website to really a community of people that are very much like what you see on the site. And we thought that would, that would be the audience. And what we found was there are about a third of the audience. About a third of the audience is over 50, and they're probably 60, 40, female, male. But 
a third of the audience is under 30, uh, which we just, we had no idea that was going to happen. And I think that these folks tend to look at the site as kind of what you were saying. It's like this, it gives them hope. There's this kind of like, they, they don't really have this like North Star of, of how to get older. You know, if you're, if you're 25, like older is 30. Um, and maybe, maybe 40 is dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just don't really have this time horizon. And the, and the other third of the people who, who follow us a lot are people in the, the marketing advertising industry. Um, a lot of insight people follow us. To answer your question, you know, what did I find? It's, oh my gosh, Faye, it's just, um, you know, the, the interviews, and I'm, I've now done hundreds of hours of them. It's like having an ideal parent. It's like, it's like the parent you always wanted, you never had, um, you get because you, you speak to, you know, all these people and you're asking them questions about like, what's working for you? What's not working for you? What, what, what are you letting go of? What are your ambitions? What are you going towards? And so I so wish like I had all this information when I was 25. It's really, um, it's an amazing wealth of wisdom. And I, and I think that that, that word wisdom has, that's really what it is. I mean, I've personally learned that so much of what is going on in my life, things that are important to me or the changes that I've made or I'm planning on making are really typical for people like myself. There just really isn't this conversation happening between people in this group. What, one of the most fascinating things, Faye, is when I, I talk to people, every single one of them will utter this phrase. They will say, I'm unusual. People aren't really like me. I'm a weirdo. You know, I'm on the outside of that bell curve. Like, I'm, I'm just not one of these people. And I, and, I, and I have to say to them, well, I'm sorry to <laughs> disappoint you, but you're, you're exactly like all these other people I'm talking to. And they'll be like, really? Like, what do you mean? And I said, well, there's like a whole, we've mapped this whole developmental model and it's just, you're like right in it. I found that was really interesting. So it, it, as you were describing that, I am looking at these headlines from your interview. So cute. If food is not what you think it is. Exercise. No. Do not retire. Stick with what works. Yeah. Embrace the way you look. Recognize the time is now. Well, that's right. I mean, if, <laughs> if, if you want to die really quickly, retire. Uh, <laughs> it is the surest, quickest way to death is to retire. And there are so many reasons for that. Um, None of the people that, that I've spoken to are interested in retirement in the least because they see how that's affected other people. They also have tremendous amount of drive to keep doing whatever it is that they're doing. And remember, Faye, like the nature of work has dramatically changed. Yeah, uh, I, I think this part is very important that retirement now means something very different than what it did before. And this is to emphasize, it doesn't mean that you don't want to quit your full-time job, but even beyond leaving the long-term career you potentially have had at this point, but go on to pursue something that you feel passionate about, maybe something completely different. Uh, I think retirement here means that you don't necessarily just stop doing everything altogether. I would go further than that, Faye. And I would say that I, I think this idea of retirement should just be banished. Um, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It's really life now is a series of transitions and each one of these transitions are sort of scary. And, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, you would, 
you know, you'd get your job at IBM and you'd work there until you were 65. And then you would have one transition and that would be from working to not working. It was this binary thing that would happen. Would I know a little bit about your story? You had one kind of career and then transitioned into this other thing that you're doing. And that's not atypical at all. You know, by the time you're 65, you may have done five or six of these. And each one of these, there'll be a gap in kind of in between. It's kind of scary. And I think what we're seeing, I think the, the reality is that it's a continuum of transitions through your life. And they may pull it out at various transition points along the way. especially if people are going to live potentially shorter, let's just say, due to natural disasters and illness, there are more reasons to actually have more of these transitions so you can experience more of life. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100% Faye. That's exactly, that's exactly what we're seeing. That's what people are doing. Yeah, absolutely. So we're onto something really kind of like unexpected. And I think a lot of people don't think about these things but in a way that I hope this conversation kind of promotes that thinking because we, we have to. And I've been thinking about it since my mid-20s. And I, it took me a while to prepare myself to get ready and for the first transition. And honestly, not long ago, I was having a conversation with a very successful friend of mine who is uh, male and uh, recently had two young kids. And he was telling me, given a kind of unusual circumstance that he foresees himself as being able to retire at the age of 50. And let's say that he went to a really good business school and all that, and his dream is to say move to the Philippines and retire. And he timed, it's so interesting, he timed out when he was going to have these two kids and how old they will be by the time he's 50, perfectly planned out. And instantly I questioned certain these certain transitions and what about mini retirement? What if the plan changes when you're 50? Why wait until then? You know, he was kind of astonished by that and didn't know how to respond. So, so you know, he's probably a very type A sort of fellow who's, you know, he's gone to business school. He's worked very hard. He's clearly done a lot of planning here. Mm-hmm. And he probably has this fantasy of his retired life at 50 in the Philippines. And he will probably live out this fantasy for maybe he'll get six months out of it. Maybe he'll get eight months out of it. And then he's going to lose his mind. And he's going to be, what am I doing? What is my purpose? You know, how much golf can I actually play? (laughs) Human beings, we are designed to work hard. We are designed to have a purpose. And the reason retirement kills people is because it removes those two things. You know, I, I interviewed Dr. Connie Mariano, who was the director of White House Medical under Bush and Clinton. And so she has real specific insight into really high-functioning people. And if you look at presidents, they live a really long time. Like, you can't kill Carter with a stick. My God, the guy's had brain cancer. He's, what is he, like 95 and he's still out there swinging a hammer building houses. Like people think like, oh, well, stress is bad. You know, you need to like be careful about that. It's going to shorten your lifespan. Well, 
No, I'm sorry, that's not true. It's not so much stress, it's having a purpose. And having this like driving purpose in your life, if that's removed, things go haywire really quickly. I can't agree with that more. I mean, literally, I you know, with Face World podcast, which is this little baby I just created two years ago. And now I find myself waking up every day, going to sleep every day, thinking there aren't enough hours in a day. I can't wait to get up and get started to do this again and have these wonderful conversations. Yeah, right on, Faye. That's it. You have the secret to life right there. Yeah. And it feels so good. Sometimes I have to control myself telling these stories to other people who work full time, who haven't slept for ages. And But I see that this is kind of interesting too. I find myself selecting the people that I want to influence and to make sure that they're okay with this and they're ready for the transition. That how can I be part to help them make that transition? That's actually part of my business. Right. Yeah. So... You had mentioned um, Connie Mariano, and yeah. I wonder who are some of other memorable guests you've interviewed or some of the moments you've experienced that you'll never forget? Gosh, you know, I, I want to say I'd never interviewed anyone in my life until I'd started this. And like I was a visual person. I take pictures. I don't talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I, it was like the first couple were like, I was so bad, Faye. I was just terrified. I had no idea what to do. So I'd written up this like question guide and I would just kind of read from the questions and they would, I would get these like answers back from people answering the questions, but it, it wasn't an interview. And then I, I kind of let that go. And now I just have a conversation with people and that seems to work better. So what I found is that everyone is fascinating. You just need to ask the right question. And that's kind of the trick to it, listening and then asking the right question to have the person tell you the thing that is super interesting. And, but that, that said, my all-time favorite interview, and we, we, we haven't surfaced it yet, but I'll, I'll tell you, her name is Trisha Kudson. And Trisha is 68, and she's an English grandmother. And Trisha retired from whatever her previous job was at like... It was like 64 or something. And uh, she was like, okay, I'm going to go home and like bake cookies or something. So after six months, she got really good at baking cupcakes. And she's like, this is insane. I can't, I need to, I need to do something. This retirement thing, ah, I can't handle this. So she decides that she's going to make makeup. And what happens to people's skin as they get older it absorbs makeup differently than younger people. And all makeup is designed for people who are younger. So she's like, well, you know, I don't like the way makeup works on my face. So she convinces these people in, uh, she finds a, like some makeup manufacturing facility outside of London, and she convinces them to make some samples for her. And her business model is a Tupperware container of lipsticks. And she's going to knock on doors and tell people, Hey, I've got this lipstick. It'll work better on you if you're old. That's that was that was the extent of her ambition. I love that. So, <laughs> but this is where it goes. <laughs> she she's like, well, I guess I need a website. Okay, so the photographer takes her picture, and the photographer says, "There's YouTube, and um, it's free. And so, why don't you do like a YouTube thing?" And she's like, "Why would anyone? Who cares what some English grandmother in her lipstick has to say?" Right? He's like, "Ah, it's free. Let's just do it." 
So she puts it up and, you know, she gets a view, two views, 10 views, a hundred views, a thousand views. She's at 2 million views now. Wow. So her business has doubled every six months. She has to double her staff and double her manufacturing. It's all driven by her YouTube videos. You know, if you first listen to Trisha, she's very much an English grandmother, but she's like this YouTube analytics ninja underneath this. And last year, Google gave her the award, the UK Digital Entrepreneur of the Year, 68-year-old Trisha Goodson, right? <laughs> she describes this moment of being on stage there are eight people on stage. Uh, they're not sure who's going to win this award. She's the only one who's over 24. <laughs> she's <laughs> 68. Right? She's a grandmother, you know? And um, so they announce her and she stands up. And of course, the other seven people are just like astonished and appalled. And she gets up to the podium and she turns around to the other seven and she says, I'm not who you think I am. And I, I, when I'm talking to her, I said, Tricia, like, I mean, you must live in analytics. And she's like, oh, yes, uh, very much so. And I said, how did you learn all that? She says, it's not hard. I had somebody teach me. I had my kids come in and show me a little bit. And, and I got the hang of it. She says, you know, this is not like that difficult. You just learn it. You just do it. And I just thought, like, I am in the presence of a superhuman here. She just, like, did this. It was, like, such an ageist story. How here's someone who has no background in technology, three years later, Digital Entrepreneur of the Year, has never done any kind of business on this scale. And now she's got this vast global enterprise, millions of people watching her makeup tutorials. It's just it's remarkable, right? <laughs> you make me so want to open up a browser and just kind of follow her and check it out because she is clearly very smart. But also, you know, when you mentioned that she retired, she got bored and she wanted to do something with her life. It sounds to me like literally like she's 24. This is a brand new beginning. She's not slowing right. down. She's accelerating. Right. She has identified an underserved community. Yes. And as a woman, I have to say that in a way that <laughs> when you're underserved, you should, you, I guess you should find all these opportunities, but sometimes it feels... I think fatal is a bit of a traumatic word. But, you know, for instance, for years since I was a little girl, I watch all I watch the runway and I watch my aunts, my mom watch the runway. And we're all sitting there thinking, like, we'll never look that way in these clothing. And in, in fact, it will be, you know, we're taken aback to not ever have to think about these things, not to mention spending the dollars, because they're certainly not designed for average women at all. Who is 6'2 and 110 pounds, 15 pounds? Uh, you know, so I feel the same way that, you know, Trisha has seen the same opportunity with makeup. It's something yeah. very essential for many women out there. Oh, this is so interesting. When is that interview going to be released? Um, we're planning something very special for Trisha. So um, we're, we're holding on to that at the moment. I love that. <laughs> um, but you know what, before we, we jump around, I you know, want to give my listeners a heads up that we will get yeah. into the monetization process, sure. which I find fascinating because you're also a very analytical person. But before we get to that part, I am a person who strongly believes that people who are interested in interesting things are interesting themselves. Yes, so I would like to learn a little bit more about you. Where did you grow up? What's the family dynamic like for you? Um, I grew up in a small farming community in uh, rural upstate New York, near Buffalo. 
there was a, a little state school there, so we weren't completely isolated. But the, you know, most of the most of the folks that I went to high school with, half of them still live in that county. I want to say three quarters of them live within, you know, an hour's drive of there. My mom was a school teacher. Uh, she was a single mom, and I had a younger brother. Uh, I went to engineering school, and I went to I have a degree in mechanical engineering, and. The reason I did that was because, for two reasons, my high school guidance counselor thought that I wasn't very smart and thought I should go to community college. And I was just like, F you, buddy. I'm just quiet because all you guys bore the heck out of me, but um, I'm not going to community college. And he's like, well, you know, if you were a little smarter, what I would say you should do is you should, you know, you have an aptitude for science. And I looked at these graphs of you know, they show you when you're like 16, like various earning potentials versus your aptitude and where those crossed were engineering. That's where I could maximize my earning with my aptitude. <laughs> and uh, so I said, okay, I'll do that. You know, so I, I went to a, a really still the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was engineering school. But I decided I really didn't want to be an engineer because I didn't, I didn't like the idea of sitting at a desk doing that sort of work and hanging out with those sort of people. So how old were you when you, when you make that transition? Uh, let's see. I was 17. I went to first college. I was 19 when I left. And then I went to Boston University and I got a degree in political science because it had the word science in it. And um, <laughs> it was a liberal arts degree. And I knew that I just didn't really feel like I was going to be educated. And I needed that sort of background to go out into the world. And then I, uh, while I was going to Boston University, um, I had like enough energy and free time that I, I started going to school at night at the same time. And I went to the, there's a little photography school in Boston called New England School of Photography. And I went there, I did night school there for two years. And then when I left school, I, um, as only a 22 year old can be, I just declared myself a photographer. Not that I really had much of a skill set, but I just said, um, this is what I am. And, and, and therefore it became true. I had my first national advertising campaign. I think I was like 24 and then I moved to Paris when I was like 25 or so. And I lived there for a while. I worked for fashion magazines and I moved to New York and I worked for magazines there. And, and now I live in Los Angeles. Wow. So you worked in the fashion industry for quite some time. Well, I wouldn't say I worked in the fashion industry. I worked as a photographer who worked for magazines that dealt with fashion and I did fashion campaigns and yeah, it's so opposite. Speaking of which, the magazine, I, that's why I asked, is it so opposite of ageist? Because it, it, oh man, it does go after, as I found out, instead of the 18, 20-year-olds, now the fashion magazine is going after the 12, 13-year-old because literally yeah. no woman could fit into those clothes. This is how the extreme has gotten. Um, I, I must ask, this is a question that kind of I derailed just now, is I wonder... Do you remember a time when you were about 10 years old and what are some of the superpowers and hopes and dreams that you had at the time? My ambitions, I'm keep in mind that I was living in this like kind of small farming community. So my ambition at that age was I wanted to learn how to braise metal. Brazing um, is a process that's similar to welding because I wanted to make uh, metal tubing so that I could make a go-kart out of metal because that would support a much more powerful engine for my go-kart. And then I could have this thing that would go like 60 miles an hour. And so my mom was like opposed to this all across the board. <laughs> Clearly beyond my capacity, but that was my ambition. <laughs> I love that. 
And the reason why I asked this question is I realized that's kind of an unfiltered life, unfiltered imagination. At a time where you're old enough, you, you, you can become really handy and make things. Right. And, but yet you're not old enough, as you have mentioned, you know, in high school or even in middle school where uh, the advisors or people or teacher will tell you that you're not good enough, you're not, you're not smart enough. Right. And I had, to, I had to wonder what you were doing at the time. But thank you for sharing that story. I, I absolutely loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was hoping to get into about sure. the actual production of yeah. Aegist. And I think we inevitably kind of touched upon recording interviews and what was yeah. it like? You know, do you, how do you prepare about, uh, how do you seek them out? How did you find someone like Trisha? Sure. Um, well, in, in the beginning, they were just people that I knew. You know, then it was like people that they knew. And now it's people come to us. Whenever I come across somebody out in the world who I think is like really interesting, I say, hey, you know, I, I, I have this magazine. I do this thing. I really like to speak to you. Check it out. We get, you know, incoming, we get, we get a bunch, like uh, sometimes like daily. We get people saying like, oh, you need to speak to this person. They do this interesting thing. Or I'm this interesting person. I want to do something with you. Uh, they, they come to us. I started out having a couple people come with me and we would video the interviews and I would, I would sit in person with people. And I've moved away from that because I'm like hyper visual. And if I'm sitting talking to you, there's one track of my mind that's talking to you. And there's another very powerful track in my mind that's looking at the light around the room and looking at your clothes and looking at the way you move and how you, the gestures of your hands and all this other stuff. So what I've done is I, we do them all on Skype and that gives me enough visual information so that I can get a sense of uh, what the person looks like. fascinating that you describe a kind of that tunnel vision and because when I interviewed Krista Tibbet, she said she would conduct interviews with the video off even right she works like the way that we're conducting our interview that we work exclusively with our voices and right. you know I'm sitting quietly and I'm just listening and in a way I'm imagining what where you're sitting where you're looking like but that's I you have my full attention and absolutely right. nothing else distracting me and hundred percent. That's that's exactly where we where we fell out on that. Mm-hmm. So I'm also kind of uh, fascinated by the team you're potentially working. Sure. I think you work sometimes by yourself, and you, you're certainly doing a lot of that. You're the lead creative director for this uh, enterprise. So yeah. you know who else is involved? Well, um, there's actually several people involved. There's my main partner Matt Hurst, and Matthew is 38. He's English, and he comes. His, his initial background is strategic insight. And Matt has tremendous verbal abilities. And he's a great guy and he's super smart. And I love working with Matt. Then our other partner is our editorial director, Andreas Torzis. 
Andreas uh, used to work for the New York Times. He's a, he's a writer, and he helped start Monocle with Tyler Brulee. And now he's editor-in-chief of the Red Bulletin uh, magazine. And so he actually does the writing. So the, the, the interviews, are tra- uh, we sent them out to be transcribed. And then Dre takes them, and that's why they sound so great. And then we have a couple of people that do social media and manage our digital presence out in the world. And then we have sort of a network of other people that we work with, depending on, you know, uh, more with client services. So our marketing and, and insight business, we work with um, a, a kind of a loose group of people, depending on the need. Okay. So there's something that you mentioned and that we start talking about last time is really about the data and the real data that you've been gathering. I wonder, mm-hmm. has anyone come to you and say, well, David, you know, None of us know anything. We're very little about people over the ages, you know, 50, 60. Hmm. And how can we work together? Has that happened yet? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we, that's, that's our business model. That's um, awesome. Tell us more about that. Well, you know, if, you, if you're in any kind of publishing, be it um, physical, digital, whatever you're doing, there's a limited amount of business models out there. I wish there were more, but business model A is the advertising model. So this is based upon how many people, how many eyeballs you've got looking at your thing. But that is going to lead you to, you know, cat videos, because it's just all about how much traffic can you drive to your thing. So we didn't want to do that. That's just not what we're about. Then the other model is the subscription model. But when you're starting off with the idea of building a community, we just thought like, do we really want to put this like roadblock in the middle here, which says you have to pay to be part of our community? That just seemed like that wasn't going to work. So our model is that we, uh, Aegis is really, there are really two things. So there's Aegis publishing that you see, uh, and then there's Aegis insight and marketing services. So what we do there is we've, uh, we spent... I want to say six months, Faye, like building up this 160-page deck insight model. It's a driver-based model that um, helps people communicate with people in our group. The, the tricky thing about that world is anybody who's in the marketing strategy world, they tend to think that they're doing a good job already, or they would like their boss to think they're doing a good job already. So the last thing they want to do is say like, ah, maybe we don't understand this. We should talk to these guys. Um, but, but we get people who come to us. Yes. We have an you know, automotive client. We have an aviation client. We have a big financial services client that we were working with in San Francisco yesterday. And we help them understand this emerging behavior, this emerging group, this new life phase that doesn't show up in their quant data because there's like so many reasons. It's basically, it's attitudinal based and it's really hard to pick that up in quant data. And what we're looking at is emerging edge behavior in the same way that like a cool hunter is going to Dakayama in Tokyo to see what color sneakers people are wearing there. They're probably going to show up in forever 21 in two years. So we're not really interested in things stylistically like that. We're interested more in what are these consumer behaviors and what's driving these behaviors uh, in this emerging group. And from that, we can help people communicate with this group. 
Uh, this is fascinating because I'm uh, currently working on a project related to research and the whole discovery is not just research. And I noticed some of the questions exactly painted the theme that you're describing is, what are their people doing? When, what is that they actually want? So they right. don't always align. I think that part when you kind of distill and kind of isolate that, that makes sense is, you know, us humans, that what we say might not really be how we really feel. And there's always that disconnect. And someone to come in as a strategic partner to be able to dissect that and make meaning, make sense, and kind of in a way compile them to somewhat of a binary zero and ones and making help them make the right decision is right. crucial. So I, I do have a, a one follow-up question. You had mentioned that people do come to you naturally. Yes. But I wonder... You know, how do they discover you organically? I think, first of all, you have a lot of content out there. And, and, and yeah. certainly with organic search, you know, assume there isn't a ton of pay media out there. And I think organic could be very powerful. But also this 160-page uh, documentation that yeah. you had mentioned, yeah. is that searchable? Is that something no. that they have to pay for as an ebook? That's our IP. So the, the, the way we work is... Um, so. So, uh, you know, people, how they find us, I'm not sure. We're, we're kind of buzzy with the strategy insight people. So we're, we're, we were written up in the PSFK blog. I know that people like Protein talk about us. I know that um, a lot of times uh, consultancies will go in and, and, you know, they'll go into a place like Facebook or Google and they'll say like, what, what's like really groovy and happening? What's edgy out there? And we're oftentimes in like the top three or four that people say like, yeah, these guys are doing something really interesting. Wow. Other people promote us in that way. And, you know, we'll just get these emails and these phone calls and be like, hey, we want to talk to you. What are you up to? And usually the next thing that they'll say is, we want to know about XYZ. We have a product. We have something we're thinking about making. We have a, we have a problem. And help us out. And, and they tend to be really problem-oriented. And, and what we say to them, we say, listen. We can help you with this, but you're not asking the right questions. So what we do is we go in and we give people like a half day or a day long briefing and we bring all their people in. We go through our 160 page deck and we go through all the driver models and everything is backed up with uh, time codes and quotes and pictures. And we really back up what we have to say. It's not fantasy. And usually at the end of one of these meetings, they're, they're shell-shocked. They're kind of, you, the first three or four minutes, there'll be a lot of objections. They'll be like, well, but your people aren't like our people. Your people are cool. And I'll say, well, I make them look cool. That's my job. <laughs> I make people look good. I've done this before, you know, but let's talk about the drivers that are driving their behavior. Do you have these things, you know? And what, what our thesis is, is these 10 drivers that we've identified are present in everybody in the demo. They're more vivid in the people that we, uh, that we surface, but they're also aspirational to people outside of the demo. So this is like really important that the objections usually last a couple of minutes and they're like, oh, right, okay, I'm like that, I've got that. Or, you know, if they're really, they're young, they say, oh yeah, my mom's like that, my aunt's like that. So you're, you've gone into this domain where it's, it's been part of my world and I find it uh, uh, to be really intriguing. So may I ask, it's up to you how to answer this, uh, is how do you seek out 
these customers or end users, you know, th- do these companies supply a majority of them? Do you have to seek them out? And if so, what are some of the tools and places that you look for? Well, we semi-actively look for people. You know, back in January, we decided, okay, let's identify all the industries and the people that we think would be good for us, and we're going to contact them all, and, you know, this is going to be great. But there's a lot of resistance out there. For you to say to that, oh, we want to bring us in, what you're saying is like your internal department isn't doing a good enough job, or, there's a, or that whatever you're doing is wrong. So there's, there's some resistance there. There's, then there's the millennial obsession, which has to be overcome. And what about the client, you know, sort of client satisfaction pointing to these people who have hired you? I would imagine yeah. it will be fairly high. Well, it's interesting. I think it's high because they keep calling us back and they want us to do more things. But most of it is in the role of consultant. So as a consultant, you're brought in to kind of shake up the thinking, give a, give a new, fresh point of view. Uh, and then what they do with it is up to them. And it's also important now you mentioned you reminded me that especially when they succeed, you know, yeah. this is not to point to your clients, but what I've experienced is why should it give you credits for it? You know, because you are, oh, oh, absolutely. you know, you're a vendor <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, t- to, a, to a certain degree, should we really care for it? I'm not sure if we should and really just fight for it necessarily. One, as you know, will result in very negative outcome if you do fight for it, fight for your voice. And, you know, you've compensated for your work. And I know that's always a little bit tricky. You know, I don't have a perfect solution for that. But I must say that you have a healthy balance knowing Aegis Magazine is there, right? When you look at an entrepreneur, that's the content that you have full control over. That's always going to be yours. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's out in the open. And so, yeah, I think that's a very healthy balance, which I see, unfortunately, many people who are struggling or who don't feel fulfilled by their work, even if it's something that you feel passionate about, is because they have so little control. I mean, this, again, speaks to whether you're in corporate America, you're in a typical advertising agency. There's so many hands in it. But before we close, um, maybe consider just a, a few rapid fire questions where, um, you know, we can, if something that doesn't resonate, we can skip right over. If not, maybe provide some of the short answers to how you would uh, um, kind of consider them. So sure. these days, what do you throw yourself at and what do you avoid? Uh, I think one of, the, one of the gifts of being a little older is you have, you have life experience and you can look back and rationally evaluate what works for you and what doesn't. I'm interested in a lot of things. Will always be I have a peripatetic mind, but I focus on the things where I can make the most impact and the things that bring me the most satisfaction. And I stay away from the stuff that doesn't. Yeah, this is wonderful. All right. Just a couple more questions. Yeah, sure. Where do you seek inspirations and new information from these days? Maybe first in the morning or like Yeah, right on. Yeah. So um I think it's like super important to um to read and stay informed. I don't have it, I don't watch television. I don't have time for it. And it's just like a waste of my time. It, nothing good ever comes out of watching television. I subscribe to the Financial Times in print because they use big words and, they, and it's written in England and where English is originated and it's a financial newspaper. So it doesn't really have an ideological point of view. I love that. I read it really cover to cover every day. 
I get the New York Times in print delivered to my door. I, uh, I subscribe to Quartz, which I think is really great. I Quartz reader every morning. I do look at CNN principally to just amuse myself with whatever Donald Trump said yesterday. <laughs> what else? I read a lot. I just finished the memoirs of Hadrian. Um, I have a real thirst for information and I've just always been curious. Yeah. Mm, lovely. So final question of our podcast, sure. how, what is the type of advice you would give to your either 20 or 30 year old self? Uh, okay. So a couple of things. I think that there's some people like I aspired to make a visual impact when I was younger. But the thing about the modern world is anything that can be digitized, its value is going to go to zero. So if you're involved in some kind of pursuit that can be digitized, so that's like music, film, photography, anything like that, um, get yourself a good day job because um, the chances of you long-term being able to support yourself doing that is not viable because it's going to go, value is going to go to zero. The, the other thing I would say would be you should take yourself very seriously because if you don't, no one else will. On the other hand, don't take yourself seriously because whatever you think is really important to you right now will not be in you know, 5, 10, 20 years. Um, it's going to change. You're going to go through these transitions that like we talked about. So it's kind of like you hold the small bird but don't crush it. <laughs> yeah, I hold, hold your ideas loosely is something hold I heard. Hold your ideas loosely, yes. So because they're going to change, but that doesn't mean that you don't have an important contribution. Mm, I love that. I really enjoy this. Thank you so much, David, for... My pleasure. That was, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. To listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at Face World. Until next time, thanks for listening.